Hey, SBCC Digital Fam, welcome to today's episode of the podcast. Yesterday in our gatherings, we kicked off a three-week series that we're calling Surprises in the Text, and we've asked our two guest speakers to pick passages and texts and scripture that has been speaking to them or challenging them or maybe something that they've seen in a different light than they have before. Yesterday was week one, and we welcome Mike Goldsworthy. He'll be here for two weeks, but Mike is a longtime friend of South Bend City Church, and you'll hear him talk a little bit about that at the beginning of his teaching today. If you go to Mike's website, the first thing you'll see is his name and then four descriptors of what he does, a speaker, a connector, a resourcer, and a guide. Mike loves and is incredibly gifted at connecting like-minded churches and leaders. In fact, he is responsible for the Post-Evangelical Pastor and Leader Gathering, or the Post-Evangelical Collective, which met here at South Bend City Church last fall. Mike is also the host and founder of his podcast, Space for Faith, Reimagining the Church for Our Current Moment. He's got incredible insight, and this weekend's teaching was a gift to all of us in Studebaker 112, and we hope that it is a gift for you as well. South Bend City Church Digital Fam, we're so thankful to have you as a part of our community. Let's jump in with Mike. Well, sisters and brothers of South Bend City Church, um, it is genuinely a huge gift for me to get to be with you all today, and, and I actually, I really do mean that. Uh, this church is a special place, and it's a special place for me. Uh, I remember uh, in August of 2019, I had stepped out of the church that I was leading. I had been on staff at this church for 19 years. I'd been the lead pastor of that church for 11 of those 19 years. But there had been this growing sense within me that I needed to step out. I couldn't identify all the reasons why I needed to. The, the language that I was using at the time was I told my church, I said, I can't maintain a healthy soul and continue to lead this church. Uh, one of the things that I meant by that was that there was this growing disillusionment that I was having about the church. A growing disillusionment about what the church could be and should be and about its role in the world and was it actually something that could be good and beautiful and redemptive. I was having a growing disillusionment about my role in all of that and what it meant to pastor a church like that. And, and so I stepped out in August of 2019 and I thought I, thought I would step away from church stuff. I, I thought vocationally I would step away from church stuff. I thought like I'm kind of done with these things but there was this growing, there was this growing like sense in me that I just couldn't let go of it. And so I called up, I called up your pastor, I called up Jay and I, and I said like, hey, could I come and just spend a weekend with you all? And, and just sit in your worship services, just be around what's happening at South Bend City Church because I have this sense that there is something significant that's happening here. I had this sense that like there was something that would reawaken my imagination for the church if I were to come here and I remember I remember I came just a month later, September of 2019, and I, and I sat over there, and I flew out here from Long Beach, California, and South Bend is not an easy place to get to. <laughs> you, have to you have to want to be here. And I sat over there, and I remember, I remember the first person who introduced themselves to me, Dr. Angela Logan, who is like a welcoming committee in and of herself, like so warm and welcoming and um, so gracious to me, and I remember sitting over there and uh, Zach was leading worship that day and I remember just being filled with emotion as I was being reawakened to the beauty of what the church can be. 
as I was beginning to have my imagination cracked open just a little bit again for the redemptive potential and the beauty of the church. And so I've, I've made a pilgrimage out here a couple of times a year since then to be with you all because this is a special place. And, and I know for you all, it's, uh, it's special for you. My guess is that you have had your own stories and experiences, and that's why you're here. And there's, there's a reason that it's special for you. But I want to make sure that you know that this church in South Bend, Indiana, that it's incredibly special. It's a gift to people like me on the other side of the country, to friends of mine who feel engaged to what's happening here on the other side of the country. And not only that, to churches around the country who are being awakened to the beautiful, redemptive potential of what the church could be and saying there's got to be some other ways and that there are churches, there are churches that are feeling the ripple effect of what happens in this space as they reimagine what the church can be, as they, as they reach back to say what does it look like to grab a hold of an ancient faith while at the same time reimagining how that faith and how that church is played out in today's context. And so I, I just wanna make sure that you all know that this place is a gift, it is special, and I am so grateful I'm so grateful for all of you and the role that you play in making it this place. So, so thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Um, now, we're starting a new series today called Surprises in the Text, and, and I'm going to be with you here today and next week, and then our mutual friend Sean Palmer will be with us the week after that, and what we're doing is we're just spending some time looking at what, where's there a passage, where's there a text that's been like gnawing on us, something that's been like working on us, something that like as we're encountering it, that it's doing something in us that's surprising and that was unexpected, and so what I want to look at with you today comes from the book of Hebrews, this passage that has been messing with me for a little while. Now, now the book of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but it is a book that is deep and theological and rich. And so while we don't know who wrote it, what we do know is that she sure was smart. <laughs> that, that doesn't always go over everywhere, but I knew, I knew it would here. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, you and I have flesh and blood. He too, talking about Christ, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, to understand a bit of like why this passage has been working on me, I need to back up and give you a little bit of context. And if we go back to 2020, remember the spring of 2020 when lockdowns first began happening. Remember as we were all staying at home across the country. Churches across the country stopped meeting and were figuring out new and different ways that here we were putting out podcasts and occasional videos and then churches, uh, other churches were doing things like putting together worship services and things like that. And, and I'd had a church reach out to me and ask me if I would film a sermon from my house that I could send to them that they would then like 
like edit into their worship service. And so I put together this like makeshift, makeshift studio in my, my uh, office behind my house. And I, I was filming a message and I was telling a story in the midst of the message. In fact, I want to tell you the story that, that I was telling that sort of spurred all of this on for me. It was about a road trip that my family and I were taking to Colorado. So we're in Long Beach, Southern California. We were driving to Colorado where my wife is from and where her parents are. But we were gonna make a detour along the way. We were gonna stop at Arches National Park because I love hiking. Our family loves national parks. We're often going to them as a part of our vacation. But there was one hike that we wanted to do there, one hike that I had done that the rest of my family hadn't done. It's the hike to what's called Delicate Arch. And if you've never been to Arches National Park, you have probably seen a picture of Delicate Arch. It's the most photographed arch in North America. And so if you've seen a picture of a stone archway out in nature, you've probably seen Delicate Arch. And as we were driving there, it was a 12-hour drive for us to get there. And we were going to stop our drive when we got there. We were going to hike, spend the night, and leave. We were literally only going there to do that one hike. So as we're on that 12-hour drive, I'm building up the hike to the family. Like, I'm telling them, like, this is so unique. People come from all over the world just to do this hike. Some of them, you walk over this huge rock face. It's unlike any other hike that we do because there's not a trail. Like, you just have to follow the stream of people over this huge rock face. And then when you finally get there, and this is one of the things I love about hiking, is that you're going to see Delicate Arch, and the only reason you will see it is because you walked there. You can't drive to see it. You can't take a boat to see it. You have to walk there to see it. And so you're going to have this incredible privilege and experience to get to see a thing that most people only see through a photograph. And so we get there after 12 hours of driving. We get out of the car. It's an hour, hour and a half before sunset. And it's still about 100 degrees outside, a place that God never intended anyone to have to hang out in. (laughs) It's hot. We put on our hiking boots. We filled up our water bottles, put on our hiking packs, and we begin to go up that rock face, the first part of the hike. What I had failed to tell my family as I was building it up was that it actually at points is kind of a difficult hike. At at one point, there's a three-foot wide ledge where you've got a sheer rock wall on one side and a sheer drop-off on the other side that you're walking across. And the beginning, the beginning of the hike is this incredible incline. You're going up about 500 feet over the course of about a half a mile. It's incredibly steep. And so it's as we're going up that 100-ish, 100-so degrees, as we're going up that rock face, the sun beating off of the rock on us, and it's this hard hike. It's in the midst of that that I took this picture with my wife. That's Allison, and, and there we are. You can see some people behind us who are going up that rock face. In fact, you, you can see it better if we zoom out to give it a little bit of context there. <laughs> that... That's my son Isaac, and and in full disclosure, he knows that you all are seeing that this morning, and he knows what your reaction is to that. Now, in fairness to Isaac, he didn't know that he was in this picture. Like, we were taking the picture, and he just happened to be there. And so I then took another picture with him that he intentionally took with me. This is the one he took with me on purpose. (laughs) Who's... Who's not pleased at that point. 12 hours in the car, 100 degrees outside, walking up this rock. He was not excited about it. 
And, and what, I, what I did as I was recording this sermon for this church as I was talking about this and, and I would say like, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like, like this is your experience of life? This is what you're going through right now is that thing? And I would say, but there's something beautiful on the other side. There's something significant on the other side. And so if you just, if you just like push hard enough at those points where you feel your limit, at the point where like you want to give up, at the point where it's like I'm done with this, that you don't give up and you keep going, you push through it, then there's something significant on the other side. And then I would show this picture, the next picture where we are at Delicate Arch. And I'd say the only reason that we saw that is because we didn't give up at that point. At the point where it was hard and difficult and where we felt like we had hit our limit, that we pushed through it and there's something on the other side. And as I was telling that story to this recording that would be used at this church, I stopped because I was like, what if you push hard and it's not always good on the other side? What if you push past the limit and there isn't something significant and beautiful and redemptive on the other side? What if it's just hard? What if it just keeps being hard? Because we were in the midst of those lockdowns and that morning I had gone grocery shopping and I had gone with my, my grocery list and I showed up and the shelves were bare. You remember that time? The shelves were bare and I couldn't find half of the things that were on our list. That week, we were running out of toilet paper and we could not find toilet paper anywhere. Like, do you remember that sort of like the toilet paper crisis and we're trying to figure out what else can be used for toilet paper? And a friend of ours who lived an hour and a half away had on Instagram said like, oh, there's toilet paper at the Costco here. And I sent him a note as a joke. I was like, tell Costco to send some of that to Long Beach. And the next day he showed up at my house, drove an hour and a half to bring us some toilet paper. We had just the week before, we had filed for unemployment for the first time in our lives because we had no idea, like, what is happening to us? What are we going to do? I had left my role at the church six months before, and it felt like everything that I had lined up for potential income just went away, and we had no idea what was going on. And as I was telling that story that I was like, this is the story that I used to believe. You just push hard through this thing, and there's something good on the other side. And then I was having this moment as I was telling it where I was like, I don't know if I believe that anymore. That story works until it doesn't work. I begin to wonder, what if my desire to push and to achieve and to do more and to try harder, what if it's actually keeping me trapped? And that the problem is that that story can make sense for so long, but only for so long until it catches up with us. And that brings us, it brings us back to this text in Hebrews 2. The author of Hebrews writes this, since the children have flesh and blood, you and I share our humanity. He too, Christ who shared in our humanity, so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, this text isn't talking about actual physical slavery, but it's talking about something much more existential. It's talking about people who are trapped and oppressed and are missing the good, free, beautiful life that God has intended for them. And the reason that they are in that place, the reason that they are trapped, the reason that they are missing that, the author of Hebrews says, is because of their fear of death. 
Or maybe we could think about it this way. It's because of their fear that there is a limit to themselves. That there's this fear that I am finite. There's a fear of my own finitude. There's a fear that I can't do everything. I can't accomplish everything. I can't control everything. There is a fear that there is a point where I cease. There's a fear. There's a fear where I actually do have limits. And so at the root of my desire to control outcomes and at the root of the way that I would tire myself out trying to arrange the pieces of my life or to arrange the pieces of my kid's life or to arrange my work life in a way that I would get the kind of outcomes that I wanted at the root of that, at the root of trying so hard and pushing past limits to get the desired outcomes, at the root of always working harder and doing more and thinking there's something beautiful on the other side, there's something significant on the other side. If I just do more and just try harder, at the root of all of that is my own inability to accept my mortality. It's my fear of death. My insistent pushback on my own finitude. I'm constantly, constantly trying to arrange my life in a way where I don't have to be confronted with my own finitude. I find ways to try and escape what my limits are what Hebrew says is that a part of what the power of Jesus' death does is it breaks the power of the stranglehold of death, which keeps us trapped as slaves for fear of death. It keeps me stuck in cycles that are all being driven by a fear of death. Now, now from, from very early on in the Christian story, the the ancient Christians begin to recognize that there's some sort of link, some sort of interplay between death and sin. That in some sort of way, death and sin worked together, bounced off of one another. Somehow, they interacted with each other. And, and, and I, don't know, I don't know if you're like me, but sin has, is language that has a bit of baggage with it. It's language that, that it's, got a bit of, it's got a bit of stuff with it. And what's been helpful for me has been the way that one scholar, one uh, one theologian talks about sin, uh, N.T. Wright, he says that sin is just simply uh, living a less than fully human life. So when we miss the fully human life that we're designed and created to live in, and so the early Christians began to recognize there's, there's some sort of interaction, some sort of interplay between this experience of life that's less than, this experience of life that's not living in the fullness of who I am and what it means to live into my humanity. There's some sort of link between that and death. And so you find this, you find this throughout the New Testament writings. You find this especially in the Apostle Paul's writings. You find this then in the, in the post-biblical era writings and the early Christians who are trying to make sense of things that some way death and sin are linked. But the question becomes, in what way are they linked? How do they interact with each other? And so what you begin to find are two, two schools of thought begin to develop, or maybe you could call it two streams within the church develop in the way that they think about this. And both of them derive the way that they think about it from the text, from the scriptures. But what they do is they, they emphasize different scriptures to arrive at the place where they do. And so I think they're both valid ways of understanding this. The first way is the way the Western church has understood the interplay between them. And so maybe you're like me, grew up in, if you grew up in North America, you probably have been most influenced by the Western church. 
And the Western church says this, says that the reason that there is death is because of sin. That sin entered into the world, and because sin entered into the world, death wasn't an option until that happened. And the reason that we will all die one day is because sin has entered into the world, and it's caused that. And that's the Western church's understanding by taking passages that are, are, uh, uh, and emphasizing certain passages. But the Eastern church, the Eastern church began to look at different passages, like this passage here in Hebrews 2. And the Eastern church said, oh, I think maybe we see it a bit differently. In fact, I think we actually see it very differently. We see it the exact opposite of that. It's not that sin is the cause and death is the result, they said, but instead death, death is the cause and sin is the result. They said that it's our inability to accept our own mortality that causes us then to live a less than fully human life. And as we keep trying to push past that limit that's a part of who we are, that we will live lives that are often less than fully human lives. Because from dust you have come and to dust you shall return until you can accept that. Or as it says in Timothy, that there is one immortal being, God alone. And so the Eastern church began to say until you can accept that what you are going to do is you're going to constantly push against that and every time you push against that inevitable reality what you are trying to do is you are trying to live a kind of life that is different than what you were designed and created to live and so the author of Hebrews calls that the fear of death it's the fear that I might not matter It's the fear that I can't control everything and that at some point I'm going to lose ultimate control. It's the fear that what I do, the things that I create, the things that I do in this lifetime, that it might not live on past me. The fear that I might not make a difference and that I might not be significant. The, th- the fear that there's something inevitable that's coming and that my life is on this track that's just headed in that direction and I can't change it and I can't fix it. It's the fear that I actually have limits. And in a culture like ours, where we have the resources and technology for, at least for many of us, to not have the fear of physical death be a daily concern, like it would have been at other times in our history and like it is in other places around the world, our fear of death begins to take on this existential layer instead. Uh, Richard, Richard Beck is... Uh, professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University, and he wrote a book several years ago that was incredibly significant and formative for me where he, he talks about this idea, and he talks about, he unpacks some of this Eastern Orthodox theology, and he pairs it up with existential psychology. It's a book called Slavery of Death, and in that book, here's what he writes. He says that in affluent societies where self-preservation is not a pressing concern, in other words, like where we're, we're not just trying to make sure that we make it through the day. We begin to worry about living a meaningful and significant life in the face of death. More specifically, in the American society, this anxiety tends to manifest itself in the American success ethos. That we need to do more, achieve more, create more. That is that while we might not fear death on a day-to-day basis, we do fear being a failure in the eyes of others and we fear being a failure in the eyes of ourselves. He writes, but failure here is simply a neurotic manifestation of death anxiety. 
And death anxiety is this, he says. It's the fear that at the moment of death, we won't have accomplished enough to have made a permanent and lasting difference in the world. They were held in slavery, Hebrews says, by their fear of death. And so what I do is I want to accomplish more, and I want to do more, and I want to achieve more. And where there's a limit, I want to push past that in order to get to the thing that's on the other side, and I'm going to manipulate, and I'm going to control things so that I can get my desired outcome, and my goal becomes self-preservation, to hold on to all that I can, to do all that I can, and, live, and I end up living this life where I have this quest to live a life of success and significance and achievement, and all of that, all of that, all of that is being driven by being a slave to the fear of death. And it drives me, it drives me, I have been discovering, to try to define my limits. It drives me to try to do more than what I have the ability to do. It it drives me to try to control situations that are outside of my control, that I have no business trying to control, and to fix things that I can't fix and that aren't actually mine to fix. This slavery to the fear of death, that at the moment of death that I won't have done something that will make a permanent and lasting difference in the world, that I feel like I have to do more, achieve more, and try harder because I haven't done enough and I haven't become enough. I am constantly trying to find ways to fight against my own finitude. And whenever I do that, what I have been finding is that it produces within me an anxiety, a restlessness, and an unsettledness. I'm tired. I can't be fully present in the moment because this moment is never good enough. There is always something more, more to be done, another thing to do, something else going on that I'm not a part of. And so I miss the beauty of what's right in front of me and... Frankly, I have begun to learn that I actually could often miss the grace and the gift that's being offered to me at the point of my limits because I'm trying to deny that those limits exist. I'm trying to push past them and I'm trying to, to essentially sweep them under the rug. And, and I, wonder, I wonder what all I'm missing when I don't accept my limits. I wonder what the gifts are that I'm missing when I can't actually embrace and receive my limits. I wonder wonder if I am missing some sort of potential for goodness and beauty in my life when I can't hold on to those things. And I've begun to wonder if instead of seeing my limit my finitude as something that I push against, something that I need to try harder through and work harder through. But I've begun to wonder if instead, if I see them as actually a gift for me, that what if my limits are actually a gift in my life? And I was remembering the way that this one author, Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and a scholar, that He translated the Bible uh, through something called the message paraphrase that maybe you have encountered. And Eugene Peterson was this incredible pastor, and at at the church that he was at, he had grown frustrated with the people in his church not being able to experience the scriptures in the vibrancy that he felt like they had, that he was like, there's potent power in them. 
and they're reading it like it's this dead, lifeless book, and how do I help them experience that? And so he began to, he began to translate for some people in a Sunday school class that he was leading. He began to translate in a way that he felt like would not only be fair to the text itself, but he began to translate in a way that he felt like also would help them to capture some of the movement that was there, some of the emotion that was there, some of the vibrancy that was there. And that eventually got passed around and would become the message translation. And I was reminded of the way that he would open up the Sermon on the Mount with what, with the Beatitudes, they're often referred to as these beginning sayings of Jesus that I know we walked through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year. And in the opening line of that, here's how Eugene Peterson translates it. It's Matthew 5, 3. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and God's rule. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when you realize your limits. When you can own that, you can't push past them. And so if, as the author of Hebrews says, that Christ breaks the power that holds me in slavery to my fear of death, then perhaps there is actually a gift in the way that I uniquely encounter and experience God at those moments where I bump up against my limits. And rather than trying to push past them, rather than trying to manipulate them to get the outcome that I want, rather than trying to escape my own finitude, maybe the gift is found in the recognition of my limits. Maybe there is a unique gift that's found in the acceptance of my limits. And when I embrace those limits, maybe there is a unique experience and grace of God that can only be found in that place. And that every time I push through it, and that every time I try to deny that it exists, that I miss that unique gift. Maybe there is something to be found in the recognition, embrace, and acceptance of my limits. And so maybe, maybe some of you need what I need in this season, which is to receive my limits as a gift. Not necessarily needing to push past them, not needing to constantly try to be someone that I'm not and something that I'm not, not needing to control everything, not needing to fix everything, not needing to get all the outcomes that I want, but instead, but instead to receive them, to embrace them, and to accept them. And so one of the things that I've begun to do in order for that to be a more normative part of my life, because my gravitational pull is to push past them. The narrative that I have is you do hard things, you push through the hard things, and there's something significant on the other side, and that's what I'm gonna default to. And so I've begun to have to learn some spiritual practices that help me to lean into receiving my limits as a gift. One of them that's been really significant for me has been a simple breath prayer. Now, if you don't know what a breath prayer is, it's just a really simple way of praying that the church has prayed for hundreds of years that you pray a phrase as you breathe in and you pray a phrase as you exhale. The, the most well-known breath prayer is just simply this. You inhale and you say, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And as you exhale, have mercy on me. And you just say that as you pray that as you breathe with the rhythm of your breath. What I've begun to do is I've begun to write some of my own breath prayers based off of, like, in what ways do I need to encounter God? 
In what ways are there narratives that are driving me in ways that are causing me to miss some of the gift and grace of God in my life and push past them? And so one of them that I've begun to praise a breath prayer is just simply this. I breathe in and I say, God, and I breathe out and say, meet me in my limits. And, and I find like I've used this all of the time. Uh, I fly, I fly semi-regularly and even though I fly semi-regularly and I actually even have my private pilot's license, turbulence still freaks me out. I mean, it messes with me. And the other day I was on a flight and I felt like we dropped like 400 feet. We, pro we probably dropped like this much, but it was like 400 feet. And I grabbed a hold of my prayer bracelet here and I grabbed a hold of one of the, one of the beads to remind me. And I breathed in and I said, God, I breathed out and said, meet me in my limits. I can't control this. I can't fix this. And so God, would you meet me in my limits? I was in the midst of a difficult conversation with somebody and in the midst of that, I began to say this prayer and, and I didn't like pull out my beads and be like, hold on a minute, I gotta pray here because you are really getting on my nerves. <laughs> and we're just gonna work through this for a sec. But as, as we're engaged, I just began breathing. God, meet me in my limits. I can't fix them. I can't control them. I can't get the desired outcome that I want to have interactions with my kids and I know so many of us and, and our kids, like we're still, we're still dealing with the trauma of the COVID experience. And there are so many things that I wanna fix for my kids in this season because of the way that it has disrupted their lives and the things that it's hurt. But there's so many things that I just can't do. And the more and more that I try and do those things, the more and more worked up that I get. And so I find myself in those moments where I wanna fix everything for them. I find myself just breathing, God, meet me in my limits. And so what we thought we would do to end our time together is we thought we would just spend a moment practicing that breath prayer together. And, and so if you don't mind, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes for a moment, getting in a posture where you can allow yourself to just simply breathe. And inhale, God. Exhale, meet me in my limits. Maybe there's something that you're carrying in here with you today that is heavy on you, but you can't fix it and you can't control it. And as you are mindful of that, and breathe in, God, and breathe out, meet me in my limits. Maybe there's a situation with somebody in your life, a family member, a friend, a coworker, and it's been incredibly difficult. And as you're mindful of that, you breathe in, God, Breathe out, meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. Maybe there is something that's going on for you. It's going on at work or it's going on in the neighborhood or situation at school. And it's producing some anxiety in you and not like a general anxiety disorder, but actual like the experience of anxiousness about that particular situation. And when you think about it, you feel it in your gut, in your stomach churns, maybe you even have a hard time sleeping as you ponder it. 
And as you encounter that, and as you bump up against that, and as your tendency may be to fix it and to strategize your way out of it, to even manipulate things to make it work for you, breathe in, God. Meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. And so good and gracious God, in the places where we are prone to try to fix everything, in the places where we're prone to try to control what's outside of our control, in the places where we're prone to achieve more, to do more, to try harder, in the places, in the places where we are prone to try to manufacture some sort of existence, uh, some sort of significance to our existence. As we bump up against those, God, may we, may we not push past them. May we not just run right by them. God, may we encounter you in those spaces. May there be a gift as we bump up against them and just simply receive our limits. May there be a special grace in the way that we would encounter you in that place. And we know, we know, we know that there is a gift and a grace there because because him who died defeated the power of death and we no longer have to be trapped as slaves to our fear of death. And so we pray it in his name. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you all wouldn't mind standing to receive a blessing as we leave here today. And so may you, my, my sisters and brothers of South Bend City Church, may you receive the gift of your limits. May you recognize that you can't always fix it. You can't always create the outcome that you want. And may you see that not as a problem, but may you instead receive it as an invitation to receive the grace of God in that place. And so grace and peace be with you. Thank you all for letting me be with you today.